This is the Salmon Trout Steelheader podcast, and today I have on the program Shane Anderson of North Fork Studios. And Shane, why don't you first of all just tell us where you're at? What what have you been up to? Right on, Lucas. Well, uh, thanks for having me. I'm uh, at my humble abode here in Olympia, Washington. I actually grew up in Olympia, Washington, and moved back in 2012 when I started uh, the movie Wild Reverence. I had no real, um, didn't think I would end up back here in my hometown, but um, the fish and the rivers and, and, and all the issues surrounding them is, has kept me here since. So built a little life for myself back home. And that you're kind of at a central um, area to access a lot of different water and rivers. Which way do you find yourself driving the most when it comes to actual fishing? I head west, you know, I mean, there's no place I'd rather be than the Washington coast, you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of where I cut my teeth, uh, rivers, the Chehalis Basin, I caught my first, uh, steelhead on the Wainuchi River when I was, gosh, I don't know, eight years old or something like that. And then, uh, fished, did a lot of fishing up in the Ho and the Solduck and Elwha when it was open and, um, those rivers are near and dear to my heart. That's where I feel at home. That's my sense of place. That's what I want to protect the most out of anywhere in steelhead country. Yeah, it's a magical place, especially the size and quality of fish and numbers. Um, but you've also been all up and down the coast as well as into Canada quite a bit as well. Where, If, uh, if you had your choice of a place just in terms of steelhead fishing alone, what region would you live in besides this Washington area? Yeah, you know, I have really had the privilege the last 10 years to pretty much fish the best steelhead water in the world. I mean, I've spent time on the Dean River. I've spent time all throughout the Skeena River. Um, I love that Dean River, you know. I mean, how can you go wrong on the Dean River, the lower Dean? My buddy Jeff Hickman owns the Kim Squit Bay Lodge there, and I've got to go up a few times. And You know, a couple summers ago, I hooked a, hooked a fish right at the ocean mouth there and it as the tide was rolling in and it was, that was a pretty magical experience um biggest fish i've i've ever lost have been on the kispiox river up in skeena tributary and the skeena itself and but you know what i just love my home waters i love the olympic peninsula i just feel that's a you know that's for winter steelhead that's where i would like to be no matter what and uh you know i cut my teeth on summer steelhead down your neck of the woods in Southwest Washington, where my grandparents lived and, and my uncle, Carrie Berkheimer of uh, CF Berkheimer Rods, who was Gary Loomis's head designer back in the eighties. And my grandfather, he, he was a real estate broker, but he started a niche for sportsmen called Sportsman Properties back in the early eighties. So his whole job was selling real estate on all those rivers uh, in Southwest Washington. So as a kid, I got to ride around with him and, and go fish all those rivers. And so those, those also mean a lot to me, uh, from, from a summer steelhead perspective. You're a filmmaker, uh, advocate, um, for, for steelhead and obviously an angler. And I guess one of the things that, uh, I appreciate talking to you, um, because I'm 
you know, I'd say a sportsman first because that's the that that's really the only reason that I'm so interested and care so much for steelhead is because I love fishing for them and if I wouldn't think twice about them if I didn't. And so that kind of is a, a side of the equation and I've noticed that there are some people who may have noble conservation intentions but they don't identify with the angler as much. And I feel like you're there you want to fish, you want to catch fish, you want to protect steelhead for their sake, but also you're a sportsman as well. Yeah, I'm an accidental conservationist. I never set out to become a conservationist, right? Like, I mean, I fell in love with fishing. And, you know, so basically, you know, a little more backstory here is after high school here in Olympia, I like left basically like a month later and head, headed to Lake Tahoe and became a professional skier and traveled around the world and competed in the first X Games for skiing. Um, and in 2000, I broke my back in 12 places at the X Games in Mount Snow, Vermont. And essentially, the, the next few years kind of, you know, lost my career in this crazy trajectory I was on, you know, like being one of the top in the world and making a lot of money when I was young. And, and I had nothing left, um, you know, to, to drive me. I was like super depressed and, and it was a really bad time in my life. And it, and it was fishing that got me out of that. It was the river, getting back from fishing for steelhead on the rivers of Northern California on the Trinity and the Klamath because I was living in California at the time. Um, you know, it was very therapeutic for me. It really helped me through a hard time. And, and, and I was just an angler. I, all I cared about was just catching fish, but there was something deeper going on there. Um, and then several years later, I, uh, you know, I was working in the film industry in Los Angeles, things, you know, had a really great life there, playing a lot of music, playing out in bars, recording albums, all that kind of stuff. And I just packed up one day and just left my whole life behind and all my friends in Los Angeles and moved up to Humboldt County um, and enrolled back in college for the fourth time uh, to study fisheries biology because I love these fish so much. Um, and that's what I wanted to basically do the rest of my life is just walk rivers, and be, be a stream biologist. Uh, and, and it was there at that, you know, several years into that program, <clears throat> you know, I'm fishing for steelhead a lot, fishing the Eel River, Smith River, Mad River, Redwood Creek, all those awesome streams in Northern California that I like really got the steelhead. I was like, really had the steelhead bug. I didn't fish for anything else. And I still don't really hardly fish for anything else. Um, except spear fishing the saltwater and free diving. But, um, I was ironically listening to a podcast. So here we are recording a podcast, um, that Bill Herzog, who I'd grown up, looking through in the magazines, uh, salmon trout steelhead magazines that my grandfather used to have. And I had Bill's books on fishing spoons and drift fishing. Um, he was doing a, a podcast on a show called Northwest wild country. And this was probably like 2010 or 11. And the whole episode was on, on the, the, you know, the Olympic peninsula steelhead and kind of like, his call out for this conservation, like, cause back then you could still kill number of wild fish every year. And he was calling for like, we need some, you know, we need to start regulating ourselves. This is, this is 
this isn't a sustainable path we're on. And I was so moved by that podcast that he did that like I instantly had this kind of epiphany that I wanted to make this documentary film on steelhead and focus on the Olympic Peninsula. And that ended up being wild reverence. So it was literally this like split second decision after listening to Bill and um, Joel Shangle, and I can't remember who else was on the podcast at the time, that really inspired me to, to kind of dig deep. And that was my first feature film. I you know worked in the industry a lot, but I'd never done my own project. And I did the whole thing, self-funded, shot it, edited it, everything by myself. We even recorded the whole soundtrack in three days down in uh, my buddy's studio down in Venice. And, um, yeah, that, and then after that, like, and I wasn't, I wasn't affiliated with any like fish groups or special interest groups, I guess is the new keyword. Um, I, I had no idea about any of that. I didn't even know anyone in that world, but as soon as people started, you know, finding out that I was making this film, <clears throat> including, some of your crew down there. I remember Marlon hit me up out of the blue. Like he's, I think he saw my kick Kickstarter. Uh, I was doing a kick crowdfunding to, to get the film finished. So all of a sudden I had all these people from fish world reaching out to me from all different user groups. Right. And I didn't know anything. I didn't know. I didn't know there was a controversy around hatcheries back then. I didn't know any of this stuff. And, you know, I just completely naive, completely like fell into the conservation thing based on my experiences uh, making that film. Um, I'm meeting really, you know, forward thinking scientists. I mean, like my buddy John McMillan and who ironically grew up right down the road from my uncle on the Washougal River. Um, but we didn't know each other back then because he was a few years older than I was. But <clears throat> my uncle and Bill, his dad were, were really close friends. And, um, so it kind of, this whole thing kind of came circle, came full circle. And, and I was able to, and he kind of introduced me to like reading scientific journals and papers. And I, and since I was, you know, kind of coming fresh out of college and, and doing that, I was like really interested in learning as much as possible. Because, I mean, that's the, the whole gift in this documentary thing for me is that I get, a, I get to enter a new world in every film I make. And I got to, like, research so much. It's like going to grad school for a certain topic. You know, like I just finished the Chehalis movie. And that was a whole journey in itself, learning about, you know, the future climate impacts and how it's affecting rural America. And Wild Reverence was learning all about the challenges facing steelhead. And so, so I guess when I finished and kind of fell into the conservation, you know, I guess a lot of the fish groups had started reaching out and I was like, cool, you know, like everybody, I, I wanted to kind of be with everybody and, and kind of just spread this gospel of, you know, let's recover these wild fish. We, they're important and we can't lose them. And, um, that's how I fell into it. And, you know, Eight years later, you know, I work a lot. I work with a river conservation group called Pacific Rivers out of Portland. Um, not so much on 
the direct fish stuff and the controversial stuff, but more on like removing dams, getting rivers designated wild and scenic, making sure logging rules are not impacting streams and, you know, really trying to revive river systems and, and create designated sanctuaries like we just did on the North Umpqua. We just did the Frank and Jeannie Moore wild steelhead sanctuary on Steamboat Creek. That was a, the president signed a protection act on and, um, you know, really, really been going that route the last few years. Well, well continuing to make movies. Yeah. And it's, uh, I, just going back to your your film, uh, I do remember Marlon at the time. You know, he saw you were making that. We started talking to you. I got to see that film. It was pretty cool. No idea your background, and it's kind of interesting for me now to find out it was just that organic, and uh, and that you kind of made your connections in the middle of that. So that that's a great film. And by the way, didn't you mention you're going to be offering? I mean, your films are all available to watch on Amazon Prime. I believe is that correct? Yeah, totally. So, yeah, Wild Reverence, A River's Last Chance, Run Wild, Run Free, and then my most recent, Shehalis, A Watershed Moment, all on Amazon Prime, free. Um, but, I, yeah, I, I just uploaded uh, Wild Reverence to Vimeo last night to kind of do a throw it out there on the web for free for a little bit. Um, you know, it's kind of weird, like it's being my first movie, you know, like I've grown so much as a filmmaker since then, and for production quality, like I have a whole team and crew now. And so I kind of get a little embarrassed by the production quality, but I, I think the story still holds up. And that's, that's the good thing about as an, <laughs> as an artist or someone, you know, working with media, you, in order to get better and to have a good uh, quality product, you always have to be uh, critical of your last, the last thing you, that you did. That's all part of growth. But, you know, just for your reference, looked awesome to me and it's a hundred thousand times better than the media productions I do. So, <laughs> um, but so yeah, kind of going back to another side of this, one of the things that I've noticed, because as you mentioned, like, I guess kind of topics that are hot button issues and stuff, there is, there is some serious disagreements to be had between certain groups and certain angler groups and such. And I've noticed for you, you're, your goal isn't necessarily to die on those hills. It's you focus on the things that pretty much every angler and almost every person can agree on, like the, the, the dam removal, especially of dams that are serving no hydroelectric purpose and such. Um, so uh, it's I'm not saying that it's easy, but it is low-hanging fruit, so to speak, and, and that's such a positive thing. With this work that you've done and that you've been a part of and that you've seen uh, over all this time, have you seen, you know, what? do you have hope for the future? Have you seen some cool surprising things? Is there anything that you think is on the up and up in the steelhead world? Well, I mean, the, the Elwha, like, I mean, that was the most, at the time, the most inspirational thing I got to see doing that riverscape snorkel survey a couple years ago in the headwaters. I uh, went up with John McMillan and, and some folks from Trout Unlimited to do a whole survey of the the headwaters and it was about three years after the upper dam blockage was was fully removed and we counted more summer steelhead wild summer steelhead than any other river system in western washington by far um and to see that three years after 
I, I had no idea how fast uh, the species could come back. Um, and there's a number of reasons why, uh, you know, the, the main being there was a really healthy rainbow trout population above those dams. And there still is a really uh, healthy population of rainbow trout above those dams. And basically what happened was as soon as those dams came down, they keyed into this ancient genetic locust and basically just re-expressed anadromy. They like just knew to go back to the ocean. But the really interesting thing was, it was like predominantly females that went to the ocean. And so when you're snorkeling, there's still these giant male rainbow trout, like over 20 inch rainbow trout, and not that many male summer steelhead. It was like, I, I would say it was like an 80 to 20%, you know, 80% female steelhead. And, you know, from a life history strategy, that makes sense, right? Like the females are the ones that carry the eggs. They need to get bigger. They need to go to the ocean and the salt to, to just have the proper fecundity more so than a, than a rainbow trout would. And a male can fertilize a female at any point of the life cycle as long as it's sexually reproductive. You know, it could be ten, eight inches or, you know, three feet, you know. So from a life history strategy, it was just really amazing to see. Yeah, males always have it easy when it comes to reproduction and even in the steelhead world. Don't even have to head out to the ocean. <laughs> um, so that whole study to me was super interesting. And what's kind of funny is that I've kind of recounted that whole story of El West Steelhead to non-anglers, people that don't really think about steelhead or anything, um, but just kind of talking about rainbow trout and steelhead being having the, the life history availability to head to the ocean or not. And it's just interesting that after all that time, those dams came down and those guys were ready to party um, and head out to the ocean again. And so that's that's a cool surprise. Now with that, of course, it's fresh. It's awesome. It's super exciting. Uh, but no fishing opportunity as of yet. Um, what about in areas that you can fish? Have you seen anything good? Um, I think there's some some gems around. I don't know if I want to like totally exploit them right now, but, um, it's been tough everywhere. It honestly, like the last few years, it's this whole ocean thing. The whole reason we're in this big fight on the Olympic peninsula and the coast. And I mean, it's right now we've been in a really bad ocean, ocean survival year from Alaska all the way to California. It's just, and, and, and it's not just the ocean. We've also been in these kind of drought circumstances the last few years. And that's really played a toll on this, the, the, you know, rising water temperatures on the, on the, you know, steel has been two, two years in fresh water. So it's been really bad environmental conditions. And, and it's because of those unknown envir environmental conditions that are only going to become more stable. Um, I think the projection is, supposed to get five and a half to nine degrees warmer in the next 80 years and then what that does for water temperature uh it, it's it's like a big Chehalis basin for example it's looking really bad in the future um you know but like the rivers like coming off the olympic peninsula and you know like the you look at these kind of what they call thermoscapes that 
these, these projections that the U.S. Forest Service has put together and what are called these Norwest models. They essentially kind of show you where all this cold water refuge is across the whole West, right? Like coming out of our public lands. And we need to come up with a system to get all those places that are going to show cold water into the future, like designated as sanctuaries for salmon and steelhead, where their whole purpose is to provide cold water, knowing that this is coming down the pipeline. I don't care if you believe in climate change or not, this is happening. We, we, I mean, we don't have to debate like how climate change is caused but it's already happening and we're already seeing these, these like radical shifts in, in temperature of water. Um, and on the ocean side, we've been in the decadal oscillation flip, which has made it really unproductive in the ocean due to what I guess we would call the blob is what the news calls it and all that. Um, but also there's this whole breakdown in the whole ocean ecosystem right now, the entire food web. And we got to be really careful with that. And we are so not even close. I mean, in how, you know, I'm talking about managing our commercial fisheries, like for sardines and herring and, you know, all the bait fish. I mean, this is a whole, you know, these fish, these steelhead, they touch, they have about a 3,000 mile range, you know. So we need to be kind of looking at that whole big picture. Um, another big limiting factor that's really interesting a big and a science paper was just published on it is there's an overabundance of hatchery produced pink and chum salmon in the north pacific gyre right now and it's throwing off the whole food web and those fish are come those fish are coming from russia they're coming from japan and they're coming from alaska predominantly you know to support the you know, canned salmon industry, the caviar industry in Russia, the pet food industry, fish oil supplement industry. You know, that's where when you go to the store and you see like salmon oil or all that, those are the species. And those fish are dumped in by the billions straight into the salt water. And there's too many of them. And they're eating... <laughs> all the other food for, you know, the, the, the wild stocks we're trying to recover here and our hatchery fish here. Like, you know, so <clears throat> the ocean's really this big mystery with a lot of things affecting it. And unfortunately, I think right now we're seeing a combination of, of all the worst possible things happen. Um, yeah. And uh, this, it's certainly, I mean, the Water temperature is a giant issue here inland as well. Um, and obviously we see this in pretty drastic ways when we log directly right next to rivers and such and, you know, take away the shade from creeks, all that sort of thing. You can see that happen just on the small scale of specific rivers and what it does to all the fish in there and the survivability of all the fish, wild or hatchery. Um, so what can we do in order to, what, what do you see uh, first of all, what does a sanctuary do for the rivers that are kind of cold water refugees? What does that do? Well, we need just like, first of all, you know, scientifically, we need to kind of look river by river with all these thermoscapes. And we need to really figure out where those cold water inputs are because there's springs coming up all over the place. Like 
case in point is the steelhead sanctuary we just you know got designated in the north umquan steamboat creek there's the there's the pool up there the big bend pool where all the summer steelhead go and and a lot of these summer steelhead you know rivers you, you know some of them in southwest washington there's certain places where these fish congregate and hold up all summer and they're really vulnerable summer steelhead and spring chinook both um and and the fish are telling us you know where these places are we need to protect and and why they're there is because there's usually these underground springs coming into the river but you know there's other places and other important tributaries and maybe some of them aren't even fish bearing but they're providing this really cold water you know and for example in oregon you can clear cut log through any stream that's not fish bearing despite if it's an important thermal contributor to the, to the system. That's got to change. Oregon's got the weakest logging laws anywhere in the whole United States by a long shot. And it's something we've been working at for a long time at Pacific Rivers to try to reform. And if you want to check it out, check out my film Behind the Emerald Curtain. I think it's on YouTube. It's all about the, what's going on in the Oregon you know, timber industry, what it's doing to the rivers. Yeah, for sure. And um, nowadays, I mean, in Washington, it seems like we are incredibly um, precise, at least in into looking at, you know, every single stream, the logging regulations are pretty tight. Um, obviously, logging is necessary. But with uh, with the right protections, you can you can log and have some healthy rivers at the same time. Um, in Oregon, I was actually just talking with it about uh, about Oregon with uh, Nick Amato down at the office, and I was telling him about the Washington State closure, and he's like, "Wow, Washington is all over the place. Oregon is just open all the time, fish anywhere, <laughs> and they still do pretty good. And some, you know, some of the rivers are still pretty healthy, but yeah, there's there's some logging issues down there as well. So now, in terms of that kind of conservation, let's go back to the idea of conservation and opportunity." Because you're an angler, you want to see places mm -hmm. opened up. You want to, you want to fish. You love fishing, and you're also, like you said, an accidental conservationist. So, what, what kind of priorities? Um, how do we, how do we make those two work together? And what do you see area specifically? Um, can we kind of break down the science and our angling styles and achieve conservation and opportunity at the same time? Uh, what, do, what do you see that looking like in in specific areas, say the Washington coast, long term? Yeah, abs yeah, absolutely. I mean, so basically what you have, you know, going on out there is, I mean, there's been a significant increase in both recreational fishermen and guides since around 1995. I mean, there's a, they presented a, a slide in the presentation, WDFW's presentation, yesterday during the commission meeting that clearly shows this pretty substantial increase in pressure. I mean, if, if there's more people coming, we, we either have to regulate the amount of people that are using it, or we have to regulate how effective we are. And, um, and it is difficult on the Washington coast because we do have co-managers and, you know, we get to manage our 50% and the tribes have their 50% and there's no changing that. It's the law of the land. It's a treaty unless we 
plan on giving back all of our houses and all the, the land that we ceded for that treaty right. I mean, that was the deal in the 1850s. This isn't the Bolt decision. This goes back to the Medicine Creek Treaty. Bolt just upheld it in 1974 as it was being challenged by WDFW over steelhead from the Puyallup River, ironically. So, <clears throat> you know, I, in, working toward how to recover wild steelhead on the coast is going to take, it's going to be a very complicated dance. It's going to take give and take from both sides. It's going to take compromise. It's going to be take having a cool collective attitude going into some of these talks and not um, seeing some of the behavior, quite frankly, I've seen this week. That's not going to help us, you know, flipping out and pointing fingers and blaming and complaining. And I get it. People are frustrated. Trust me, I get it. It, it caught people off guard. But at the same time, we've all been having meetings about this for the past eight or nine years, and everybody's known the writing's been on the wall, but nobody's been able to agree on put, putting forth, <clears throat> you know, certain conservation measures, you know. And as I stated in my testimony yesterday, uh, you know, sport fishing might not be the number one loading factor, but it's the one thing, the only thing that we have control of in this situation. We can't control treaty rights. We can't control ocean conditions and we can't control the melting glaciers and the warming temperatures and all this other stuff. All we can control is our user group. Now, how do we want to do that? Well, it would make sense to me that we would come up with reasonable, you know, alternatives for dealing with this increased pressure of, of anglers and then really sit down with the co-managers and figure out, well, how do we either raise the escapement goals to get more fish on the spawning ground to kind of create this buffer around these uncertain years where habitat, you know, oh, it's horrible ocean condition. The forecast is bad. Well, what if we had a couple extra thousand fish to buffer against that? We wouldn't be in this situation right now. So, so it all comes down to this game of numbers, paper, fish, and management. And that's going to take, that's a very delicate dance because we have co-managers and we need to work with them and not blame them um, constantly. That's just not, it's, that's not going to get us anywhere, trust me. <laughs> And <clears throat> furthermore, if you look at the same trends in the Willapa rivers, they're experiencing the same trends as the North, North Olympic rivers or Grays Harbor rivers. So that's telling me that there's, there's both environmental fact, uh, factors in the freshwater and ocean that's the number one limiting factor. It's not, you can't just blame the Indians because it's happening on rivers that aren't being gillnetted to the exact same trend lines. <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, this whole thing blew up and there's going to be a lot of people that aren't going to talk to each other for a long time. And it is what it is. And people are either going to have to adapt or, or move on. And that's just that's the unfortunate scenario.
that's mother nature and, and decades of mismanagement coming to a head. And, um, I'm, 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 I'm positive we can grow from this. I'm positive we're not at the point right now that Puget Sound was in about the early 2000s when it, everything just fell off a cliff and hasn't, you know, been able to recover since because there is a point in all species where you reach a critical low mass where it becomes really hard to rebuild a population. And I, I fear that we're right there on the OP and I, I'm, you know, people can say, oh, there was 3,000 more fish over escapement in the Quileute system, for example. Well, there was also 2,000 under in the entire Shehala system, you know, and where do you think all those people are going to go fishing out of their boats if the, there's only a couple tributaries open? And that 3,000 fish, then you cut it in half, because <laughs> the co-managers have half, that's 1,500 fish on the table. And that's one of the most heavily fished river systems in the entire state, according to creel surveys. I mean, there was one year a few years ago where one and a half times the whole run was caught and released. And that's what was reported. And we know people aren't always telling the truth to the, to the creel surveys. I know that for a fact, because I know some of them <laughs> that, have been, that have been behind, you know, like ask the person behind a boat, like, uh, that reported catching no fish and, it, uh, and they were like, no, those guys hooked like eight today. So there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot going on. There's a lot of fish getting handled. And, and another thing is people are like, I never see dead steelhead, you know, fishing, you know, like I don't believe the CNR studies, right? Like, they, Hey, I'm one of those, 10 I'm, I'm one of those people, Shane, you're going to have to explain this to me because 10% <laughs> seems ridiculous. I'm exactly the man you're describing. So let's talk about that. Are we killing one out of every 10 steelhead? And if we are, we should all stop fishing. Um, I, I, I like to go to the sub, sub-lethal effects. I don't necessarily think that we are killing one out of 10. But I can guarantee you that there are sub-lethal effects that, re, that, that affect reproduction in ways that have been proven scientifically, not out here in any studies, but like on Atlantic salmon, for example, and, and other fish species, is when you put those, and, and let me back up a little bit, winter steelhead and summer steelhead, you know, catch and release mortality is a completely, di they're completely different species, completely different sexual, you know, maturity like summer steelhead are like rainbow trout. You could probably, you know, they're much more resilient to catch and release pressure. And this is something Liz Hamilton brought up on the uh, call yesterday. She's like, well, in the Columbia, there was a one and a half to two percent or whatever the statistic was on a catch and release study. And I know there was, a, there was also a catch and release study on the wind. And I'll have to dig up that because my friend did it. Um, and we should check those numbers. But winter steelhead are much more susceptible because they come in sexually mature um, and summer steelhead kind of develop when they're not being caught and handled like they have this whole like layover period you know when they're not affected like usually you hook a summer steelhead when it's not sexually mature when a fish is sexually mature 
and you're basically and, and they're like under like it's like fight flight or fleet like they release a drug called cortisol and we you know this happens to everybody like if you're in the cortisol goes right into the eggs and it can that exchange can reduce the fecundity productivity in sexual reproduction let's let's just say for instance not 10% are being killed but are you saying that 10% is a reasonable for unsuccessful breeding i'm not saying that but cuz i i definitely see that there's no doubt you know the stress of a fight and everything um but but i mean is it to the point that i I know it's probably good to err on the side of caution, but is 10% caution or is it just a bit extreme? I mean, I got to be honest with you. I, I am not up to speed on all the catch and release literature out there. I'm just not. And I, I, I should be, maybe this is something I'll go, I'll dig into and, and let you know what I find out, but I'm not going to just talk to something I, I don't have the facts on. I, I just know that there's sublethal effects that aren't accounted for. And there's also these same, you know, those from a sport fishery perspective. But there's also net dropout from the commercial side. So there's fish that can get wounded or picked off by predators in the net. And I saw this firsthand uh, on the Chehalis when I was out with the Quinault filming the Chehalis movie. We showed up in the morning to the nets and there was just a couple fish heads and no fish and this like thousand pound stellar sea lion that was and this and a a fish swam into the net while we were there filming and no doubt within like 10 seconds this this seal this like thousand pound sea lion had that fish and was throwing it up in the air like i couldn't believe how fast that happened so who knows how many fish are getting picked off out of nets when no one's looking, or even if they're looking. <laughs> so there's there's basically this huge X factor in, in both commercial fishing and recreational fishing that we just don't know what our effects are. And that's why we need a better buffer in what we would call escapement goals or recovery goals. You know, so... So ten, yeah. 10% would theoretically be okay if we had uh, plenty of fish. I'm just thinking from, you know, I get that all these X factors and different things that happen. I guess just as an angler to me, if I really thought that one out of every 10 wild steelhead that I caught was dying, I probably could not justify myself going fishing at all for them. And there's got to be some major differences between someone back trolling a bait diver uh, for a winter steelhead, as opposed to like a smaller hook with a jig or something like that, I would assume there's. Uh, it'd be nice if it would be broken down a little bit more. That's definitely for sports anglers. I've heard a lot of people, myself included, just kind of like, "What in the world? Ten percent?" <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's the other the other factor is like, yeah, you and I know how to handle a fish, but there's a lot of people out there that. Phew, oh I've, yeah. I've seen- you know, I've seen horrible things. Damn wild fish. Yep. I wanted a hatchery fish. It just beat the crap out of it. Yep. 
I'm not saying everybody does that, but I'm just saying everybody's got, you got to treat these things with, with kid gloves. Oh, I've seen if, that. You know, I've seen that on the Columbia um, River. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of interesting. So, I would think that summers would be, would be more susceptible. I guess I didn't think about the sexual maturity side of things, but those warm temperatures in summer, I would think that's, well, that's a bad true time too. To I mean, that there is, yeah, you know, you don't want to fish over a certain, you know, 70 degree water. That is bad. Um, but really cold water can be hard on fish too. So yeah, especially the females. And, you know, I should reiterate that, you know, the males, the winter steelhead males are a lot more, Hardy, they're not carrying the, they're not the egg wagons there, you know, so they're, they're more hardy for sure. And, um, and the other kind of factor is there's a lot of smolts and rainbow trout getting hooked up there on those rivers. And that mortality is really high. <laughs> um, that mortality. Uh, yeah. You almost can't, if you have a steelhead size hook, you hook one of those things. Oh man. It's probably 50% die. <laughs> it's terrible. Uh, but theoretically, and there's... we're on the... Oh, yeah, go ahead, go. <laughs> I was going to say, well, we're on the tip of, uh, you know, catching catching fish up there. Like, you know, our whitefish populations have really taken a dive. And I know guides are out there killing them because they think they're eating eggs. And that is the farthest thing from the truth. And they're a really important part of our ecosystem. So please, please stop killing whitefish. Yes, whitefish, uh, I've heard, are an indicator of, of decent water quality. And But I think the thing is, is people get them mixed up. And they also do this with suckers. They get suckers and whitefish mixed up with uh, pike minnow. And so they kill them because they think they're pike minnow. Yeah, feel free to kill all the pike minnow you want, you know, I'm not, you know, that's, or, or bass or walleye or whatever, you know, any of the invasives. Um, but, but those fish are really important to the ecosystem. And, you know, we've known, you know, John and I do a lot of snorkeling, John McMillan and I do a lot of snorkeling up there in the winter. We've seen a huge reduction in the last decade of whitefish populations and resident rainbow trout populations. So, wow. Well, for what it's worth. Huh. Whitefish are a cool fish, and they are um, related, aren't they, to salmonoids or something? Yeah. I, I, I don't know how they're related or whatever, but they are really important. Um, and that being said, all salmon are important to the health of steelhead. One of the biggest issues with fish management over the past century has been only to look at habitat. And not to look at the um, the entire food web and ecosystem and what those salmon nutrients meant for the vitality of steelhead runs. Those smolts eat the crap out of flesh, and that flesh makes bugs. That you know, I mean, it's all connected, and there's a huge pattern. With the decline of salmon, kings and coho and, and everything, I mean, we've lost this huge nutrient load that once supported all this life for these for our steelhead. And in places like Northern California where the water's warm and there's a lot of bug life, it's not might not be as important, but 
like on the west end, those rivers are steep and they're cold and there's not a lot of nutrients. So, you know, salmon carcasses provided an enormous support system, life support system for our baby steelhead. Like our, that was our nursery. So we need to get salmon back in big numbers too. It's not just steelhead. And those, like the Alaska rainbows or kind of estuary rainbows or whatever you'd want to call them, uh, the, they have, they basically just stick around the river and eat salmon flesh and eggs uh, and can grow to some incredible sizes. I wonder, what do you think? I know that these rivers uh, in southwest Washington, for instance, and a lot of Columbia tributaries probably still... Um, historically probably still didn't have as much insect life as as others but what do you think we may have used to have in terms of like the more resident life history around here oh i think there's huge rainbow trout i mean i've seen like on the on the soul dock i've seen historical pictures of stringers of like you know 20 inch rainbows and you know that was that happened everywhere down on the Eel River, five-pound rainbows, like in California. And, I mean, still the Klamath has really big rainbows up in the headwaters. and But that was a really important, that's the other kind of missing kind of uh, life history that we've almost extirpated from most of these rivers. And I'm guilty because I used to fish for them and kill them my entire childhood on all those rivers. Like, you know... Go up to the headwaters of the East Fork and pan fry up as many rainbow trout as possible. I mean, that's just, that's how we grew up. And we didn't know the link between steelhead and rainbow trout. We just learned that, really. So, Yeah, which has been really interesting um, for me to learn about. And so I have a new appreciation when I catch kind of a, you know, on these steelhead streams, catch a fish that I think might, you know, is essentially a resident steelhead, or maybe he's just big and hanging out for a couple of years before heading out to the ocean or whatever it may be. Uh, it, they're pretty amazing to look at now thinking about that. So those different life cycles, um, it's it's an interesting subject, one that I would recommend people take a look. One one book that we have at a Frank Amato Publications that you can buy on amatobooks.com is called uh, Wild Steelhead by J.D. McPhail. And uh, that one, I read that and it had a bunch of really interesting information about the life cycles and how in the Kamchatka and such, there's these kind of an intact picture of what a healthy steelhead stream is like. So been able to find out a lot about that and use it as a reference point. Obviously, Russia is different, but it's it's really cool for hearing about that scientific study. I myself have absolutely no... Um, scientific background, um, barring my K through 12, uh, education, but I love reading and, and hearing from people like you and other biologists, fish biologists, and just, I devour information about this. So that's one of the things I appreciate about talking to you is except for that whitefish thing I just asked you about, um, you've thought of everything, you've thought of everything, you know, you've always got an answer on something. Um, and, uh, although, like I said, you need to figure out that whitefish connection here. That'd be an interesting thing to talk about. Anyway, um, so I don't have a PhD, man. Like, like I'm not. I just, I just know a lot of people with PhDs. I, you know, that's one of the things I've been really blessed with over the past decade is like 
meeting like these scientists that are just these incredible scientists across the world, these salmon scientists. And I have learned so much. Like I, I basically got a free education um, by the best in the world and just, you know, kind of on these email lists and get sent the recent s studies and science papers. And it's really fun. And I just never stop learning. And, um, if I could back up real quick and talk about you, you brought up Alaska. Um, and I got to go up to Bristol Bay this year for the first time during the biggest sockeye run ever recorded. And we flew in a float plane to this place called Moraine on the headwaters of Bristol Bay. And I have never seen any kind of abundance like that before. Like the whole, it was just like the, a river of flesh and, and red. <laughs> and we were with these like, I was like 10 feet away filming these thousand pound grizzly bears eating, you know, and you know, I, this strange calm was over me and my team up there. Like we weren't even freaked out about it because they were so keyed into the salmon run. Um, but that gave me this whole new kind of picture of what a really healthy ecosystem looks like. And it also made me think of, you know, these escapement goals that we've created and we've been managing, we've basically been managing our fish in Washington to the lowest of standards for the past, I don't know, 50, 60 years or whatever it's been. And to look at all those fish in Bristol Bay, you know, in these watersheds of Bristol Bay, where you literally probably could have walked across their backs. There was that many of them. Like when in the plain, it was just the whole creek and river was just red. And it just, you just hear this roar. There'd be these waves of fish that would move upriver. And it was the most incredible thing I've ever seen. So after seeing that, I just think that we're really, we're just managing for extinction at this point. We're not managing for the ecosystem, the, 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 the abundance of, of salmon and, and steelhead that kind of feed the whole cycle. And we're not missing, managing for buffers of environmental impacts. Um, we're like managing at the, the, the very bare minimum. And that's why we're getting into these sticky situations and trouble. Yeah, no doubt. Um, of course, the, uh, how, much, how much development is there in Bristol Bay on those streams or logging? Is there any, anything going on or what's the reason it's so phenomenal for spawning Pure those fish? wilderness. Pure wilderness. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's pure wilderness. And I should also say that you know, we really harp on maximum sustained yield as kind of the model of how we manage our fisheries in Washington. Um, however, they use maximum sustained yield up there. And the reason why it works up there is because it's pristine habitat and there are no other limiting factors. So the reason why it doesn't really work here is because there are so many other limiting factors and wild cards it's just impossible. It, maximum sustained yield does work if you have a completely clean slate, but it doesn't really work here and it doesn't work for steelhead. It works for sockeye pretty well. Uh, but the other interesting management, you know, another kind of thing that we should probably think about is, so they have sonars and counting stations in those tributaries of Bristol Bay. And before the commercial fishery even starts up, 
you know, they allow like this huge escapement of fish to go up the river before they even send the boats out. Um, and now they've found this balance to where they can literally harvest half the run and get 80 million fish back every year, you know? So it's, it, it, they've totally figured it out up in Alaska in Bristol Bay, how to, how to properly manage a fish. And now they've learned how to properly shut down a mine that could have destroyed it all. So that was all really good positive news. Yeah, what a sigh of relief there for so many anglers and sportsmen. And there was universal, you know, um, support of shutting that down, which was really awesome to see. It's like there's some things, so many things that people can't agree on, but there is some things that everybody can come together and agree on other than uh, the people that it might benefit financially, of course. Um, So going back to... Um, one of the things that I was actually talking to my buddy Jordan today, and we were talking about how the early wild steelhead have been very affected and uh, historically dropped way more than that spring run is what I, what I believe or what I've heard, um, kind of the more spring return wild steelhead and such. And so one thing he brought up is why not close these, uh, these early winter wild fisheries, and open them during the um, the later part of the run, and why why have we kind of forgotten about that early component? You know what? That's brilliant, and I would totally get on board with that because that's what we need to do if we want to return to any kind of abundance. Um, the reason why is because well, there's a couple reasons why. The reason, one of the reasons is the state has gotten to this point where they doesn't even acknowledge there ever was an early run. Um, and you know, and some of the tribes for that matter. Um, and the other kind of the, the, the big component in Washington is we chose that Chambers Creek hatchery stock back in the early fifties, which was an early timed run. And, um, that's what we've decided to use in these, uh, you know, Washington has more fish hatcheries than any other, than Oregon and California combined, and Idaho, I think. Um, and these these Chambers Creek, nothing comes back to these Chambers Creek hatcheries anymore. They're basically extinct. However, that was one of the reasons that we don't have any uh, many early time run fish uh, left is because they chose this stock to return in November, December. And back in the 50s and 60s, there was about a 90% exploitation rate on all wild fish as well because they didn't even clip back then. So... <clears throat> So it wasn't even, you know, we okay, you know, the whole hatchery argument. You know, right? we're going to touch on something that, you know, an effective hat that hatcheries had. I'm not saying they still. Well, they probably no, it, they still do maybe in a, a commercial standpoint, the netting standpoint this way. But back in the 50s and 60s, when they started those runs, they actually had really great return rates when those fish were like genetically at their prime. They just started these programs. I mean, they were getting, you know, what do we get back now? Like 0.4% or something. And, you know, back then it was up with six to 7% return rates. I mean, there was like these fish, you know, when you hear these old timers saying, oh my God, the steelhead fish used to be so great. We just need to plant more hatchery fish. And 
it was it because it was like that for a number of decades before it totally fell off. And in those decades, <laughs> the, those wild fish were getting caught and killed at that ninety percent exploitation rate with the hatchery fish because they were all just fish. Um, and and <clears throat> including the commercial fishery, so you know the co-managers netting all the Puget Sound rivers and on the coast and all that. I mean, and it still happens like right now in the, you know, the Quileute and the Queets, they're probably out netting those, uh, early hatchery, you know, those early run hatchery fish as they should be getting them out of the system. But unfortunately they're also taking what's left of this like remnant, you know, early return steelhead and, my friend John McMillan has been working three years on, on a paper to kind of to prove all this and to basically get an early run, um, you know, recovery program going. Because without recovering that stock, we, there's no way to get back anywhere to, to large numbers. Because winter steelhead throughout the Pacific Northwest had bimodal runs. Like there's like two winter runs and the reason why they evolved that way is think about, think about the freshets that come in November, December and January. And then in the spring, a lot of those tributaries don't have enough water for fish to get in. They only have access to certain parts of these habitat of the watershed when there's enough water. So if you look at, Tribal harvest data, like let's say on the coast of Washington, we can put together these run reconstructions and basically the entire steelhead runs in most of these rivers on the Washington coast peaked by the end of January. They already hit 50%. And the tribal fishing records also show they didn't even fish in the spring. They, they basically stopped fishing after the end of January. So, so basically right there, you've just, and by eliminating those like, um, early time steelhead, you're basically cutting your run in half because it's a bimodal run. Um, and somehow along this shifting baselines along this, this whole last 50 years, uh, management has just said, well, wild steelhead entered February. You know, there was never really was an early run and they were just kind of remnants and that's so not true. I mean, there's, um, there's harvest data on the Queets from, you know, I wrote this down cause this was, a, I was, I was pretty impressed with this number. So 1954 on the Queets, there was 5,000 wild steelhead harvested in December. That is more fish than is coming back to the entire Queets watershed this year. Yeah. So think about that for a second. It's incredible. It's a, I actually first learned about this and heard about it um, from Dave Brown, who runs this program called Wild Fish Rescue on Salmon Creek in Vancouver. Mm, yeah, I knew Dave. Yeah, I've yeah. been out there. Yeah, super nice guy, um, interesting dude, and he was uh, he was telling me how he used to do helicopter surveys of the East Fork Lewis, and in 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 December and such, 
and he was saying that they counted more reds, uh, you know, like before January than they would in the spring. Not that the spring run was any smaller. It was bigger than it is now, but it's just that early run was awesome. But um, they were mostly creek spawners, tributary spawners, he said. So there's like a bunch of things going against them, in, including, you know, the stored all rock pits down there and everything and all this um, habitat destruction of the creeks and such. And then one thing that's interesting, you know, you started talking early run hatchery fish and I thought, okay, here we go. This is going to be a, you know, a contentious, <laughs> contentious bit of information because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very in support of, you know, what I believe to be good hatchery practice. And what was interesting though, is when you started describing the effect, it was actually due to us as anglers, not, um, you, you weren't talking about the steelhead themselves um, coming in and slitting the throats of wild steelhead um, before they got to the red in kind of a nefarious way, but rather they weren't fin clipped. We're planning the runs, and then we just start bonking everything. And mm-hmm. now all of a sudden, all those wild steelhead that were in there are just getting roped by every angler coming down, plus the hatchery fish, and the entire abundance goes down due to that. And so there's different. There's been some interesting studies and, you know, kind of like between that Hood River study and the uh, the Upper Clackamas study and stuff, there's some back and forth on hatchery versus um, wild or, you know, the commingling of both stocks. But that I, I hadn't even thought about that harvest factor on hatchery fish that were not clipped and harvesting both. And I that makes that makes so much sense. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, so with that said... What do you think? Did you read that whole uh, Clackamas, um, Upper Clackamas study that they did about the Scamania stock and the, I guess, lack of influence on winter steelhead? Yeah, well, I, I guess the fundamental flaw I see with that study is that they still were planting winter steelhead. So there was no control. I mean, there was still a bunch of hatchery fish going out. So kind of that kind of yeah, but, but and, I, and they did had such few samples from the Clackamas, and they were pulling samples from other rivers. Mm-hmm. Um, that's you should probably have John on to talk more about this. Um, but th- that was the the red flag that I saw. No, I I mean I I see that as a control factor and a red flag and and such. Um, but at the same time, it seems like if. Uh, if it was really a horrible thing, you know, the study would have been negative one way or the other. And to me, to me, it was a wonderful study because I love planting hatchery summer steelhead. <laughs> I think they're the best. They're awesome on, you know, I get to fish for them on rivers that don't have, um, that either have dams or, you know, don't have historical steelhead. So it, to me, it, to me was a, it was a nice, again, I do, I'm not one to really have any room to say anything about the studies themselves because I don't have the education. But I thought it was pretty cool that it, it, it's not as negative of a reflection on summer steelhead hatchery fish, which, by the way, getting into that, I live right next to the North Fork of the Lewis River, which has a dam on it, or has three dams on it, um, and we get hatchery summer steelhead, which I enjoy fishing for. They're those Scamania stock that I think originated in the Washougal and such. But there is three dams on it. I was talking to a biologist once, um, won't mention any names or anything, 
and I had asked about the summer steelhead, the wild summer steelhead before the dams. And he said that they didn't exist, and they're actually managing that upper, <laughs> they're managing the upper watershed with no, um, you know, the whole fish trap thing that they're doing where they cart them from the dam on up to above the third dam. They're saying that there was no summer steelhead up there, and and so they're not trying to bring them back in any way, shape, or form up there. Only winter steelhead, which just to me, knowing that the other fork of the Lewis has summer steelhead, has wild summer steelhead up in those waterfalls, and then knowing that the north fork of the Lewis had this incredible canyon and waterfalls and tons of tributaries, super cold water, I'm like, how could there have not been summer steelhead there when there was in the Washougal, the east fork? Um I would assume on the Cowlitz, do you know anything about the pre-dam yes. Lewis and pre-dam Cowlitz? I have proof that there was years where there were 22,000 summer steelhead up there. I have the paper. So there was more summer steelhead in that north, you know, above Eagle Cliff up there than any of those other, maybe not the Cowlitz, maybe the Cowlitz had more, but... Anyone that spent time on the North Fork, and that's basically what I named North Fork Studios after, because that's where I used to go with my grandpa. That was our fishing spot up there. Um, anyone that's ever fished that up there knows that that, that is a summer steelhead Shangri-La. And maybe they were getting pressured because there's a big dam relicensing going on right now. And Pacific Corps doesn't want to put fish passage in. So... I'm sure there's a lot of biologists that are influenced by that right now, um, but there is data available to show. There wouldn't be rainbow trout up there if there was a right. And oh, there's yeah. a really healthy rainbow trout population. So big ones too. They're incredible. And bull trout. And bull trout. Yeah. <laughs> like, so where'd they come from? <laughs> yeah. You know, for like, sure. So we're um, that was a little concerning. That's where I started to go. I, I was like, what in the world? This person who has a degree is studying on this river all the time. That's their 40-hour-a-week job. And they're going to tell me there was no summer steelhead in there. And so you actually have the data. I just figured it was like there's no way there couldn't be based on the other rivers around and the habitat it had to offer. So that's really interesting. I would love to see that data if you have at any if – you, if you have it, that would be really interesting to study. Um yeah, I was so shocked when I saw that number. I was like, 22,000? Like, I mean, these are real counts. And I did, yeah, I, I, I have that data. And, and, and I've thought about that river a lot after the Elwha because I think the same thing would happen there if those dams came out. I think those huge rainbow trout populations all the way into the headwaters would just go. I think it would be a really fast recovery. I think the cowlitz would be a really fast recovery if those dams came out. I mean, that those dams killed. that The cow was like the mother river of southwest Washington. And there was such a fight with fishermen. That's back when fishermen fought against dams. I mean, it, I can't hardly get anyone to fight against a dam anymore in the fishing community, unfortunately. Um but but then there was this huge outcry because it was Tacoma Power privatizing the fishermen's favorite river, and it was a huge campaign to stop those dams. And unfortunately, well, did it work? Anyway, <laughs> oh man, that it's just crazy to think. I mean, like those you see those rivers, and I, I fish them often, and uh, the like. I think of I've, I've never been there, but like looking at the Smith River. 
and like these, you know, giant canyony rivers with amazing, beautiful fish and giant fish and lots of them. It has to be like, I would think the North Fork and the Cowlitz would have been similar type of situations. These, those, I mean, the sheer canyon of the North Fork alone, if it didn't have dams, that thing would be so cold. It'd probably support every single run of fish except maybe sockeye. And it would just be phenomenal. But that, I mean, that's a, let's talk about dams. So, I mean, that's of course a, you know, my pipe dream to be able to fish an undammed cowlitz or the North Fork and stuff, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. But you've, what if, what in the world of dams have you seen lately or been around lately? Well, we just, you know, we spent the last two years, um, trying to stop the Chehalis dam from going in. We can't even believe, you know, in 2020 that we're here fighting this on one of the last large dammed, uh, undammed rivers in the state. But, um, Fortunately, the Quinault tribe and the Chehalis really put their foot down and it got the attention of Governor Inslee and he finally came out in July and kind of put a pause on it and asked the board to look at alternatives to a dam. That being said, the Army Corps engineers just wrapped up their environmental uh, review process of it, which was one of the worst documents I've ever read. It was so full of holes. Um, so... Yeah, searching for alternatives that can mitigate, you know, flood damage because it's like a flood control dam. It has no hydropower in it, and they're they're selling it as a temporary flood reduction facility. They're not calling it a dam um, that would only be used in these big high events every, you know, decade or whatever. But who knows? Who knows with the with these climate impacts? Because the climate impact group at UW has basically projected a 20% increase of these high-velocity flows in the next 80 years. So they could be happening more regularly, which means the dam would be shut more regularly. And there's also a plan to, to raise it and to have a permanent dam there. So it's a big deal. So give me a couple reasons why, because there is the... The flood side of things, of course, I remember the 96 flood, was it 96 or 97? I remember Chehalis being completely underwater and such, and I-5, it always floods over there during any flood right there. Um, but what are, you know, obviously, you don't want people to have all of their houses flooded every couple years, but what are some reasons that this dam is not necessarily the best uh, solution for that? What have you found? It's capacity, um, you know, dams have a, and dams have a finite life. So, I mean, the real question is, is, will it hold back enough water to really, like, stop I-5 from flooding? I mean, I-5 was built right in the middle of the floodplain. And subsequently, all the box stores and chain restaurants were built next to I-5 because that's where the commerce is. And they were built in the floodplain around a dike and levee that was way too small. And, it, you know... Essentially, people just have built the built it in the floodplain, and what we really need to do is come up with a program to try to relocate some of those people and create greenways and spaces for these rivers to flow that can benefit fish and keep people safe. You know, flooding is the number one cost uh, to the federal government in America for natural disasters, and it's because people are building in harm's way. And those, uh, unfortunately, those are a lot of local 
jurisdictions that we all have to pay for federally with our taxes. So there, there needs to be some kind of, you know, re-looking at these development codes across the country and where people build and, and incentivizing people to move out of harm's way. Yeah. Uh, and I enjoyed uh, your Shehalis film. I was actually really surprised. I thought it would be like um, Shane Anderson getting out of a Prius, climbing into a tree and locking himself to it and saying no more dams. But it was actually very... Um, I, like you kind of saw everybody's side of it. You didn't demonize the people who were saying, you know, they want that flood control. You were just presenting the human aspect of it, the the nature aspect of it. It was it was cool. I appreciate I appreciated that it felt organic and like you didn't have an agenda, but it still left me feeling like the Shahalis Dam idea is not a great idea. Yeah, you know, all the movies I'm currently making and and my kind of vision for my future storytelling is I really do think it's important to show all sides of the issue. I don't want to just make advocacy films anymore. I'm, I'm, I really like to take the journalistic approach, the objective approach and let people decide for themselves. I mean, who am I to tell you what to believe, how to fish, where to build? You know, I mean, I can suggest my own opinions, but I think it's much more powerful in a, in a film to to present the issue as it really is. And, you know, and it's hard to take myself out of, you know, being passionate for fish and rivers, like sometimes to take myself out of that. And but but I think for the long term and reaching the biggest audience and, you know, I think it's really important to, to show both sides of the story. And I got to say, I'm really excited for the project I just started this this past year. I'm going to be documenting the Klamath Dam removal for the next six years. It's the largest dam removal in the history of the world. Four dams. It's going to open up 400 miles of habitat for salmon and steelhead. What do you think? Uh, I mean, the Elwha was like, you know, 20 or 30 miles. This is 400 miles. Wow. What do you think that'll do for that river? Oh, boy. I think there's... I am. Totally optimistic down there in the Klamath because, uh, you know, well, Spring Chinook are, are a question. You know, they're like on the borderline of heading toward extinction. And a lot of the original Spring Chinook runs did originate up high above the four dams um, and have long been extirpated. So, you know, that's an interesting, that's, that's going to be a really hard reintroduction you know, spring Chinook there. And there will obviously have to be some kind of a artificial propagation hatchery system to do that because they don't exist anymore and there's no genetics from there. They're lost. Um, and there was, all, there was this big debate th- during the dam removal. Like everyone in the upper basin was like, there was never salmon up there, but there's like clearly pictures of the Klamath tribe with salmon. And uh, my friend Mike Miller that just... Um, found the run timing gene, Dr. Mike Miller from UC Davis, he's a genetic scientist and wizard, analyzed some fish bones that were found up there and there were 5,000 year old uh, salmon bones and found that both fall and spring Chinook used to use that. Wow, that's incredible. He found that and was able to do that analysis. Man, um, so that's actually, that's interesting and it kind of reminds me of what I think is a cool story, which is the, you know, with, with the help 
of some hatchery propagation on the upper Sandy. And again, I don't know enough about this to make a fully educated, uh, um, you know, talk about it at all. But really, basically kind of the idea behind it is uh, with the dam that was eventually removed, Upper River Spring Chinook had to be kind of artificially helped and then gained a massive footing. And now the wild return to the Upper Sandy is phenomenal. And actually the Upper Clackamas has been really good for wild spring Chinook as well. So a few, I think, in Oregon, some good signs. Um, and then for spring Chinook um, themselves, where where do you think we're at? What, what's your whole take on the Oregon Coastal um, spring Chinook kind of debate? And I've seen some, what about that genetic run timing thing? I've, I, I've seen some papers suggesting that um, fall and spring Chinook are of the same kind of are the same genetically. I don't know. You know, I just want to learn more about it. What's that all about? Yeah. So Mike's work basically, so he identified several years ago, a, a genetic marker called Greb one L and Greb one L is essentially this ancient genetic component that controls run timing. So it may, it's the difference between a spring run and a fall run and a winter steelhead and a summer steelhead. And it's an ancient gene. It was evolved over 15 million years and it can't be, you can't get it back if it's lost. So that's why it's so important to protect whatever remnant spring Chinook genetics are out there. Um, I think kind of what you're talking about is a problem we're seeing and we're seeing this, uh, in the rogue, we're seeing this in the Chehalis especially and um, other rivers that don't necessarily have um, barriers like you know like the North Umpqua has a barrier where the fish jump over it and the springers jump over it and it's largely springers up above the barrier and falls below not much co-breeding so spring and fall you know unlike summer and winter steelhead spring and fall Chinook can breed with each other and basically what you're creating is what you call a heterozygote, a, a crossbred. And unfortunately, when these spring and falls are crossbreeding and becoming going from a homozygote, uh, either a, a spring or a fall, to a heterozygote, which is the crossbred version, <clears throat> they typically lean more toward the fall gene um, than the spring gene. So it's this really unfortunate situation we're seeing across the entire West right now is where, where there aren't these barriers and there's spring and fall Chinook in the same river, the falls are starting to outcompete and dominate that spring genetic. So, so historically, if there was a ton of spring Chinook and a ton of fall Chinook of both, that probably wouldn't be an issue at all. But so yeah, the barrier side of things is definitely, a massive factor because aren't spring Chinook essentially spawning like around Thule time? Yeah, that's, you know, like in the Chehalis, there's a definite overlap for sure too. And in, in some of the Columbia tribs and, you know, I guess the, what's talked in the scientific community right now is maybe <clears throat> figuring out a way to set up like weirs essentially in, in some of these important spring Chinook spawning grounds to basically block the falls from, from getting up there and keeping them below this, the, I mean, that's 
kind of the only real option. And, and unfortunately, back in the 50s, uh, it was the policy of Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife to blast all, a lot of these barriers to make it easier for fish passage because they didn't think you know, fish could do it on their own, even though that's how they evolved. Um, I mean, they did that at Sunset Falls and the Lewis, you know, the East Fork. They've done that on the Chehalis and everywhere. So now we're learning that those barriers were really important, you know, genetic barriers too. Yeah, keep them, got to keep them separated. So now I, I think the reason there's a, been a lot of pushback against, um, against like the idea of the separate genetic for like a true spring Chinook is because like the only proposed solution that you hear bandied about is just um, never plant another spring Chinook in that area again. And so that's why there's a lot of pushback. Um, I, of course, love me some spring Chinook on the dinner table. So I love um, hatchery production. It seems like that where we're idea for the wild spring Chinook would be a phenomenal way, uh, albeit takes some more work and it's not as natural as a nice handy waterfall or something like that. But, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's contentious, but interesting. And it's usually just kind of based around everybody wants to keep fishing for these fish. And of course we've got to, um, we got to have our conservation measures in place. So there's this big delicate balance and it's good to have, it's good to have some people that are overzealous in, in both directions to try to balance it out, but it's probably pretty tough. And so you're meeting with uh, the tribes, you're meeting with, do you meet with WDFW at all, or is that kind of separate? I haven't about the Spring Chinook, so I'm, I'm actually working on a Spring Chinook project right now called The Lost Salmon, uh, a film, because, you know, historically Spring Chinook also were the dominant species on the west coast more so than falls um and and the big killer was is is more like those high head dams i mean think about all those dams in the willamette system that were built without fish passage with all that spring chinook habitat and columbia and california the san joaquin like that whole sacramento the sierra nevadas like that was all spring chinook country that we've we've extirpated so <clears throat> Again, it's like, um, you know, it's a big social question, too. It's like, when do we intervene and play God and, and try to reintroduce, you know, something that's been extinct? And how do we do it? And what's the difference between that type of a hatchery program and a production hatchery program? Because you're not going to recover them with a production hatchery program. You're gonna, it's going to have to be like crazy genetics, you know science and, and finding the right stock that will stick really um so you know and 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 i think it's important with a conservation if you if if, if you're making a hatchery to reintroduce an extirpated population you you also have to pull the plug at some point it can't be forever at some point you got to back off and let them do their own thing well i think um, everyone's and, okay and we with that done that much I, I think everyone's okay with that if um, if they really will do their own t do their own thing. It's actually interesting and cool in Southwest Washington that they've moved to a different broodstock program. They did those uh, the gene banks, and so then with the remaining hatcheries, with some of them, they've done a Southwest Washington broodstock to try to get rid of that Chambers Creek strain, which is just getting 
weaker and weaker runs, and it's also the like the run timing on the Chambers Creek fish is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Whereas these this new broodstock, it's like it's the whole season. It's pretty cool to see. Um, so with that spring chinook planting, um, how's Klamath above there? What do you know about on the Klamath as far as habitat and water temperature above where those dam sites are? Well, it's, I mean, it's all spring fed up there. It's incredible. I mean, there's like 20 pound rainbow trout still up there in some of those tributaries, like these old steelhead genetics too. So I know it's a big, you know, as far as the spring Chinook goes, I mean, you know, the habitat's there way up there. Um, but it's like, what genetic is it? Are we going to take a rogue fish? Is it, you know, we, we can't take the only spring Chinook population left in the Klamath is in the Salmon River, which is way down from the dams. Um, and it's its own genetic stock. So it's very unlikely that like using that stock above the dams will work because those fish will probably just return to imprint back to the Salmon River. Um, so yeah, there's a big question going on. There's no, no, no one has the answer yet. It's a, a lot of scientists are putting their head together to try to figure out how to reintroduce spring Chinook in a place they've been extirpated because spring Chinook are the hardest fish to, to artificially propagate, first of all, because they take, you know, the hatchery needs to be really cold um, water. And so it's a, uh, it's a new frontier. I mean, they, you know, like coho and steelhead seem to have a, a, a much better chance at recolonizing than than spring chinook do and uh and coincidentally the tastiest salmon there is is also the hardest to raise (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but you know all good all good it'll come back around speaking of which with um, ocean conditions and blob things and all that good stuff um even though i know we're headed for much tougher temperatures from what i hear from you know most of the older anglers and people that i talk to a lot of them say that there you know there will be that cycle that comes back around and we'll have some good fishing years again um how that lines up historically who you know who knows but either way when if and when that happens and things roll around and things get better um for a little bit what do you think is going to happen is everyone going to take credit for that or what you know what do you think What's going to be the reaction? Are people going to relax? Are people going to go go harder? What do you what do you see happening? Because right now everyone's like on edge. You know, we know there's there's so few fish and this is so tough. Um, I guess it's kind of a weird question. I don't really know how you would answer that necessarily, but <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it goes back to building those escape those buffers you know like having more fish like goal recovery goals instead of like managing at this bare minimum level across the state like i just find it inconceivable that the carrying capacity of some of these rivers is expressed in the these low escapement goals i mean if you look at the escapement goals across the state of washington they're low you know compared to some of you know what's left of habitat it isn't just all habitat i mean there's like I said, it's the whole system connected earlier, but, um, is anyone ever going to take credit? I don't, I mean, I don't, I hope people aren't all bickering about that. If the ocean turns good, I mean, we'll know that there'll, there'll be science to prove that, that we've, we've turned the corner there. I, 
I do think we're going to have continued uh, hard times on the freshwater side, and I think that's why it's really important to focus some of our energy on um, making sure we have a good freshwater home and some sanctuary for the fish. Totally, totally. I'm going to take credit for it. Um, You can take credit. Yeah, thank you. Um, Yeah, that's all. It's all all good stuff. I, I just have another question or two for you, and then I'll um, wrap it up here. But, um, so one of the things and good old Facebook, gotta love Facebook. We were um, going back and forth, having some fun. And one of my buddies, who's a really good buddy of mine, um, brought up the fact that there is a secret space society, um, (laughs) that you are a part of and you are, I'm a part of it. You're a, I think you're a spy. You're like a spy into, you know, the fishing community in order to shut down all fishing and wear tweed hats and cast spay lines with no hooks on them. What do you think? I, I tend to be suspect of some groups as well. Um, but do you think in, in all the people that you talk to, cause you talk to a lot of people, you talk to, um, fly only guys, wild fish only guys, you talk to hatchery thumpers like me. Um, uh, and I say that with, you know, with, you know, being slightly facetious, but you know, I'm definitely on the gear angler side of things. And you you talk with the tribes. Do you think there is nefarious things going on or does everybody really have the same goal in mind? What do you see? There's, there's definitely no like underground organized societies like making these decisions or influencing the state. Um, First rule of Fight Club is you're not supposed to talk about it. So <laughs> yeah, I know, I'll take I know, that as a right, yes, Shane. Yep. <laughs> if there was a secret space society, I wouldn't be invited because I fish with a gear rod half the time or carry two rods with me all oh, the time usually. Wow. Um, so you just said that out loud I on a podcast. Heard about it. Yep. <laughs> you know, they wouldn't let me in, man. Like, <laughs> yeah. Not dry line only, you know, it's like, uh, but... Look, yeah, there's people at extremes on, on all sides of this whole debate, right? Um, I don't agree with everything the wild fish groups, uh, their messaging and all that stuff. And I don't agree with everything the other pro hatchery people are saying, too. I think there's a lot of, um, there needs to be a lot more give and take. I think there's, a, you know, from the pro hatchery, you know, Facebook community, I think there's a lot of people just speaking not scientifically just kind of what they want to hear or want to say and also from the extreme end of the wild fish community i I think there are a lot of places that would be a challenge to recover wild fish uh you know i'm i'm not in the camp that like we're gonna go back to the 1800s i'm pretty well aware that we all have power and homes and dams and cities and that's not going to change um never said it was i don't believe that uh you know i think as far as the whole hatchery conversation goes i think the reason why there's been such a headbutt and and miscommunication is because um either you're looking at it purely as a social issue or you're looking at it purely as a scientific biologic issue 
and nobody's really looking at the social and the biologic. Like, you're not going to... Hatcheries clearly have some effect on, on recovery. I mean, there's so many papers about that. So you're not going to really win that argument. Like, but, but there's a social argument to be made, too. Like, you know, people want to go harvest a fish. That's not something that maybe some of the, you know, the wild fish side of people are, are taking into consideration, you know. You know, I do believe in a portfolio approach to, to management and hatchery management. Um, I feel, you know, like I said earlier, Washington's got more hatcheries than, you know, California, Oregon, and Washington combined, yet we have some of the lousiest returns. So why can't we, like, look at that whole portfolio and figure out what's working, what's not? And, you know, that's where that whole gene bank argument comes you know i mean we can't afford to have hatcheries on every river even if everybody agreed on it they're expensive so where are we going to invest the money to provide the opportunity and that's a social dynamic kind of question where everybody's got to like come up with some agreements so you know where, where do wild fish have the best opportunities to to survive and thrive I mean, that was the whole kind of gene bank argument and then you know where can we reinvest some of our money and, and, you know, create better hatchery programs on those rivers that provide more of a social benefit? So that's the way I look at it. <laughs> I can appreciate that. Being in southwest Washington, being able to fish on the last few um, runs of hatchery stocks on some of the rivers that are now gene banks. Um, I got to see some, you know, in like one year in particular, I think 2012 or 2013, um, like a phenomenal hatchery return and then they're gone. And then the tough part though, is then we, we go into this terrible ocean conditions and you know, the, the hatchery fishing is gone and then the wild fishing is even worse than it was before. And it was like a gut punch for, you know, being able to actually catch steelhead, but there has been some good moves on the broodstocking end, changing up to a localized stock and stuff, stuff like that. And then, um, seeing a few, you know, kind of cool things happening with wild summers and such. I would think one of the things that I just see is one of the biggest benefits to wild fish from hatchery fish. You mentioned that in like the mid nineties or something, a bunch more, um, angling activity on the Olympic peninsula. And it seems like that would have happened right about the time that those Puget sound fisheries really took a dump. And so all these people from Seattle that would never think about driving three hours to go catch a steelhead when they can just roll down to the to the riverbank near their house now are flying out to the coast and so these good stocks that remain the internet is it's easy to find information about them we're not catching hatchery fish on the cowlets like we used to so everyone fly over to the coast to a small river system you know that has has a good wild run but now they're getting hammered and so spreading out pressure is something that i think we can really benefit from strong hatchery programs on, um, especially if we're killing 10% of them. Yeah. I mean, it goes down to like, I mean, we really got to analyze our river systems and, and figure out, you know, where are the appropriate places to do that and have those fisheries and where are we, you know, trying to, to recover wild stocks. I mean, what, yeah, where, I guess where are we also willing to just kind of like, 
accept the fact that maybe the Cowlitz Dam's here to stay or the North Fork or wherever it is, you know. But, I mean, there's so, I, I just don't understand, like like I said, how many hatcheries there are. There's so many hatcheries in the state, and a lot of them are kind of just pumping out fish at, like, quarter, you know, potent, uh, productivity or whatever. And not really providing any fisheries, but costing a lot of money to operate those facilities. So it's like, it's really like, how do you spread out the, the economics to, to provide? to take what there is in the budget for hatchery production and put it in places that, you know, can benefit society more than other places. Um, yeah. I mean, you'd be surprised some of the places that they still plant where there's really not even really fisheries. <laughs> it's, it's kind of strange. Yeah. It does suck. Um, when, uh, you know, spend a million or two and they're getting such small returns. It's rough. Um, but yeah, so I, I think it's it's cool, and I do appreciate that about you that you're not um, uh, the secret wild um, mafia. <laughs> Although I know that you obviously lean that way, and you know, uh, but I guess I can appreciate that you're willing to see the social aspect as well, and the the fishing aspect. And for me, of course, I'm very lucky to be able to work in the fishing industry, and there's some amazing economic benefit there as well, not just to my pocket, but to other, you know, to all sorts of stores and stuff, wherever there's more fishing opportunity, more people are driving in from other areas, gas shopping, all sorts of good stuff. Fishing is awesome for the it Northwest. Is, it I, is. I just want it's it the, to it's the, it's be the, awesome. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's the fabric of the Northwest. It's part of our, all of our identities, you know, and, and I know that, and I realize that. I know what it's done for me in my life, and and I know what it's done for you and other people. Like I, I would never want to take that away opportunity away from anybody. I don't care how people fish. Like you know, like I said, I've done it every, every which way. I still enjoy doing it every which way. Um, and I would never want to, yeah, take away somebody's opportunity to fish. And, and that's what's so heartbreaking about the current situation we're in. It's just like, you know, I have to make a, you know, tough stance on like what I feel like will lead to, you know, long-term, you know, sustainability and, and more fish in the future versus like just kind of the status quo and, and hoping things get better, you know? Um, I'm just trying to look out for the future generations. I'm not looking out for myself, man. I could, you know, I, I'm privileged enough to where I can jump in the car and drive to California and go fish if I want or BC or wherever. Like, but like I said earlier, like, you know, these Washington rivers are, they mean a lot. They're my home waters and I want to see them get better and healthy. And I want to see other people enjoy them and the next generation to have something to, to, to get off the computer and outside. Get off Facebook for crying out loud. Go fishing. <laughs> it is pretty special. So, well, um, I could probably sit here and pick your brain for hours, but uh, I should probably wrap it up here. And I really appreciate you jumping on the podcast, Shane. Um, where uh, where can people where should people find your um, films? Um, I mentioned earlier, most of my my main main films are on Amazon Prime. It's Wild Reverence, uh, Rivers Last Chance, Run Wild, Run Free, 
Chehalis, a watershed moment, all of them for free on Amazon Prime. Um, and uh, North Fork Studios is my uh, website, but I'm going to be launching a new production company here in the next few weeks called SwiftWaterFilms.com. And uh, that's where all the, the whole new Klamath project and we just documented the Nooksack Dam removal this summer, which was amazing. The film Concrete Blowing Up, that was a monumental thing for my film career. Um, and yeah, do got some ideas for some other stuff too. Uh, just want to feel very privileged and blessed to, to be in this position to, to be able to document some of this and to try to raise awareness and bring more people into the conversation and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, Lucas, and can't wait to get out and fish with you this winter. Yeah, please do. Come on down. We gotta, we're got we not all closed up like you guys are going to be up there. So even though we have less fish, we'll at least be able to fish for them. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, and uh, before we go, what's your, not in regards to patterns or jigs or anything like that, but just top three colors fishing for steelhead. What What are yours? Black, blue, and pink. It depends, I guess, what we're fishing with. Are we talking flies or worms or jigs or? Well, that's the idea. Plugs? Is that we don't we don't know. This is only about the colors. It is funny how, like, with a certain, like, all I'm down to fish a certain color spinner that I would never fish a jig that color, and you know, and vice versa. It's kind of interesting how that works, but yeah. It is weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, I've never fished an electric blue worm, but I love an electric blue string leech on a fly. Yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. Kind of funny. Which is something, <laughs> something, you know, our preconceived notions are funny. So, yeah. Well, awesome, Shane. Thanks again. And like I said, let's definitely fish. Um, I got a cool hike or two that we should do um, that I think you would enjoy. So, Awesome. Well, I appreciate you. I appreciate Sam Trout Steelheader for planting the seed in me like a long time ago. I had stacks of those uh, magazines my, my grandfather left me and my, my uncle was on the cover once. So it's a, it's a part of my uh, part of my history and the fabric of who I am, too. So let's uh, let's keep this whole fishing game going. Not giving up yet. Me neither. All right, Shane, have a wonderful night. Thanks for being on the uh, Salmon Trout Steelheader podcast. Everybody, if you enjoyed this podcast, uh, please check out Shane's films. They're phenomenal. As well as tell your friends about this podcast and subscribe and like and have a wonderful time. We will talk to you guys next time.